Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight, everybody. So glad you could join us here today. Um, it's going to be an exciting show. Uh, first, though, I do want to thank uh, Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please check out the Internet for him and his wife, who have a, an amazing talent and gift. They're Native storytellers. And if you've never experienced what the Native storytelling history is and what, what the process is, you're in for an amazing surprise. It's a technique of preserving history before the written word verbally passed down generation to generation. And the stories are amazing, and they talk of cosmology and lessons and wisdoms. They aren't just stories. They're ways of life that they are teaching. So please check that out. <clears throat> so today we are going to be delving into one of my favorite, favorite subjects, you know, Give me ancient Egypt anytime, and I'll wallow in it. Um, we have Scott Crichton with us today, and his latest book has just been released, and it's fabulous. you got to read it, everybody. <clears throat> it's called The Great Pyramid Void Enigma, and it reveals the extraordinary purpose of the newly discovered big void within the Great Pyramid of Giza. In November of 2017, an international team of more than 30 scientists published the results of their two-year-long Great Pyramid research project in the journal Nature. Using an advanced imaging technique known as muon radiology, three groups working independently from each other discovered a massive, previously unknown space within the Great Pyramid of Giza. Mainstream Egyptologists suggest that the big void is simply a stress-relieving device for the Grand Gallery, but, as Scott reveals, Ancient Coptic Egyptian texts describe exactly what the big void is. Why do you hear this? Exploring the controversy surrounding the big void, Scott artfully debunks many of the theories about the purpose of this massive chamber, as well as other long-held Egyptologists' beliefs. Analyzing the Coptic Egyptian texts 
and evidence from astronomy, archaeology, and other sources, he reveals how the Great Pyramid was built by Khufu as an indestructible recovery vault to help Egyptian civilization rebuild after a cataclysmic natural disaster, a rapid pole shift and subsequent deluge predicted by his astronomer priests. And the key component of the recovery vault would have been the Hall of the Ancestors, a sealed safe haven containing the mummified remains of the Osiris kings, deceased pharaohs who would seek the benevolence of the gods to ensure Egypt's recovery from the disaster. Scott is an engineer whose extensive travels allow him to explore ancient sacred sites. He has appeared on many shows, including Ancient Aliens and Coast to Coast AM, he is the host of the Alternative Egyptology Forum and on AboveTopSecret.com, and he is the author of several other books, including The Great Pyramid Hoax. So I want to welcome Scott to the show. It's such a delight to have you here today. Scott, thank you for sharing your time with us. Hi, Barbara. Yes, it's, um, it's very good to be here. I think this is... Um, I'm probably right in saying I think this is probably the first time um, I've been on um, your show. So, yeah, pleased well, to be here. It is the first, but but trust me, there will be more. Um, <laughs> this this topic this topic has long fascinated me. I've always been intrigued by the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx, and 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 I've never really bought into what they say it was for or they were created for. And and so your book was just such a joy for me to read because it makes far more sense than, than the stories that, that people are you know have been spinning for literally decades about um among other things who built the uh who built the pyramid and why. Yeah, so um, what was what was it that intrigued you? What was it that drew you into all of this and made you want to investigate it? Well, I think probably, Barbara, much like yourself, I've always been, you know, even since I was a small child, I've always been um, very much intrigued by these, this, the Great Pyramid, the last ancient wonder of the ancient world. And, you know, it's just... This, the narrative that's come down to us um, that we all have been taught in our junior school or high school or whatever that these were built as the tomb of the pharaoh and the device by which the pharaoh could ascend to the afterlife to be among the gods. You know, that's what we've been taught. You know, but there's a lot in history and there's a lot about the Great Pyramid which which just simply goes against that particular idea. Um, let me give you just one small quick example, Barbara. The ancient Egyptian king was probably more important in death than he was in life. Because in death, the ancient Egyptian king would intercede with the gods on behalf of the kingdom, the living kingdom. His job was to you know, ensure the benevolence of the gods to, to bring about the, the sunrise, ensure that the Nile would flow, the winds would blow, the crops would grow. And, you know, that was his job in the afterlife. So 
the kings had to be protected. The dead kings had to be protected. Now, if you are going to place your king in a pyramid that can be seen from about 20 to 25 miles away, that's not really protecting your king. What that's doing is, you know, putting up a big beacon to every Tomb Raider in the land. Look, guys, here it is. Here's the booty. Here's the treasure. Come and get it. You know, so to me, that just didn't make sense at all. It was just stupid, really, you know, um, that um, an ancient Egyptian king would actually do something like that. Well, yeah, it does, it does, you know, beg the question, you know, but I think also the fact that, you know, the inside of the Great Pyramid had no hieroglyphs in it. And, and every tomb that I've ever read about or, or looked at, you know, on the, on the Internet has been just, you know, covered with hieroglyphs telling the story of the king's life and what he went through and his achievements and his victories and, you know, I mean, and there's nothing graphic in in this pyramid at all in the king's chamber, the queen's chamber, or the grand gallery. So yeah, and and and, and oh, it was yeah, all that's... sealed up. So so it, it was sealed up so that they were they were done with it. You know, it was kind of like they sealed it up. I'm done with this one. Let's move on to the next type stuff. So it had to have another purpose. Absolutely, um, you find that. The giant pyramids, the very first pyramids that were built, are really quite stark. You know, there's no artwork in them, at least no officially sanctioned artwork in any of those giant first pyramids, which is kind of strange because when you consider that Khufu's um, sons his, his, and his siblings, when you look at their um, tombs, like their Mustaba tombs, like the tomb of um, Khufu's son, Kawab, who was the crown prince, and he actually died before um, Khufu. And when you look at his Mustaba tomb, you know, it's decorated. His um, sarcophagus, his granite, or stone sarcophagus is decorated. It has inscriptions all over it, as does Khufu's daughter, um, Merisank, um the second. You know, so here we have contemporary sarcophagi of Khufu's children, and um, I think. Um, a sibling um, of um, Khufu, you know, they they had their sarcophagi inscribed with their t- their name and all their titles, and these are entirely contemporary, supposedly, with the sarcophagus inside the Great Pyramid, and yet that chamber, all the chambers, as you said, Barbara, within these pyramids are completely devoid of any artwork or inscriptions. The sarcophagus of the so-called sarcophagus is completely devoid of any names or inscriptions. It's almost like these pyramids were from a different age where they knew that there was little point in speaking or writing 
you know, in, in their language because what they were doing was building, you know, something, you know, complete. It wasn't it wasn't a tomb. It was a, a, a recovery system that they were building. So, and they wanted to communicate what happened, not using their language, but using the only universal language that there is, and that is mathematics and geometry. That is what they used to communicate their message, because there's little point in using, you know hieroglyphics or anything like that. Now, there are some unofficial hieroglyphics in some chambers high above the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid, but um, that's that's an entirely not another story, um, yeah. which maybe we can yeah. touch on later. Oh, absolutely. I think one of the other features, too, they, they, they have found... Certainly in the Valley of the Kings, those those burial chambers were underground and they found, you know, mummies and they found all sorts of wonderful um, antiquities there. But in the Mastabas, um, and they found, you know, they found mummies in them. But did they ever find um, a mummy in any of the pyramids? Not um, any of the giant pyramids, the first pyramids, no mummy that's been identified as, uh, you know, a king has been found in any of these pyramids. They have found, uh, I think they found um, a body in one of the small satellite pyramids beside um, um, Ancyra's pyramid. That's the smallest of the three big pyramids at Giza. Well, it has three smaller pyramids still. I think they found a body in one of the the um, pyramids there, but and they found scraps of bone and scraps of what they believe is, um, you know, mummy wrappings and so forth and so on in various pyramids and pieces of human bone and um, linen wrappings and, and they declare, oh, this is the king, this is the king. But, you know, then they go and, and have the things tested and it turns out that, well, actually, um, these these um, human bones and other artefacts are from much later intrusive burials, not original burials to um, any of these um, pyramids. But there's a really, really interesting story, Barbara, about the second pyramid at Giza, the, the middle one. It actually looks like everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of people think it's the Great Pyramid because it looks like the tallest of the three pyramids, the one in the middle. It's only, it only looks taller because it's in slightly higher ground. But the Great Pyramid is actually behind behind that in the distance. But inside that pyramid, it's, it's called G2. That's its nickname by um, Egyptologists. They refer to it as G2. Now, in 1818... Um, an Italian explorer by the name of um, Giovanni um, Belzoni. He was the first person in modern times to manage to break into the so-called burial chamber in G2. And it, it looked like it had been entered before because there was some, um, I think, um, Muslim writings on the or Arabic writings on the wall. So someone had broken in, in, you know, about 800 years or 1,000 years ago or whatever. So Belzoni was in there in 1812, and he managed to prise the lid off 
the stone box, the granite box there, he managed to prise the lid off it. What do you think he found inside the box when they got the lid off, Barbara? Have a guess. What? I know <laughs> what it is. So I, <laughs> I read the book. <laughs> okay. Well, well, your listeners may not know, so I'll tell. They found, Bill's only found this stone box um, filled with earth and stones. That's all that was in this stone box. Now, mm-hmm. he was completely baffled by this, as are, I suppose, Egyptologists, even to this day, are baffled by that. But they just explain it away as, oh, well, you know, the king's body was stolen and antiquity, and, you know, for some reason they decided to fill it with dirt. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And, um, well, it makes sense in, in my particular understanding of the, the pyramids because... As I see in the book, this was all about the rebirth of the earth, the rebirth of the kingdom. Not the rebirth of the king, the rebirth of the kingdom. That's what these pyramids were all about. And this was a Teutonic ritual uh, about the earth, about the sacred earth. And that is what they were doing. And you find, and here's the other curious thing as well, Barbara, you find it in later dynasties, you know, the fifth, the sixth, the 12th and onwards, they make, they have this festival called the Festival of Kuak, and this is an Osiris festival, because the Osiris was the ancient Egyptian god of rebirth. And what they did was they would get, make themselves a small box, usually made of wood, um, sometimes it could even be made of stone, but usually made of wood, and it would only be about a foot long, uh, a few inches wide, a few inches deep, and inside this box, they would fill it with earth, and they would put some some um, seeds of grain or whatever um, on top of of this earth, and then they would put a lid on it, and then they would dig a hole, put this box in the hole, and then they would plant a big rock on top of it. What these people were doing during this festival was mimicking what was in the pyramid of what they understood to be in the stone box in the pyramid. The point being, Barbara, is that there was never a body of a king in any of these so-called sarcophagi. It was just plain old earth that was put in it because it was part of a deep Teutonic ritual about the sacred earth. And that is why Bolzoni in 1818 found the sarcophagi within the Great Pyramid filled with earth. And that is why there's no king's names on any of these stone boxes, because these pyramids are from, in my opinion, a different age. The pyramids that came later, attributed to the 5th or 6th, maybe not so much the 6th, but the 5th dynasty, um, imitations, the ones from like the 11th, 12th dynasty, again, imitations of um, the, the giant pyramids and you know, basically mimicking the original function of the giant pyramids. And so well, I, that is yeah, why... Yeah? No, no, I think it's important for people to understand what the purpose of the pyramids actually were. And I think that, that 
you know, we have to go way back in time to the originator and why they were built and, and what their purpose was. Yeah. Well, according to these um, Coptic Egyptian texts that have come down to us, Barbara, now, the, the Coptic Egyptians, they, they still exist in Egypt today, and they regard themselves as the descendants and the, the custodians of the original ancient Egyptian people, um, the ancient Egyptian civilization going all the way back to its roots. That's what the Coptic Egyptian people in Egypt today believe. And they have these um, oral traditions, their cultural heritage, which they tell us goes all the way back to Khufu, from the, Arab, the Arabs interpreting the Coptic Egyptian oral tradition and putting it into writing, um, translated the name into Arabic as Surud, which is possibly Khufu. So, the issue is that the Coptic Egyptian, these texts that have come down to us by the Coptic Egyptian people as you know, their, their ancient you know, heritage, mm -hmm. it just seemingly gets ignored by Egyptology today because it tells of a completely different function and purpose for these pyramids. And it's one that just doesn't... Um, connect that well with the modern theory that these were built as a tomb for a single pharaoh um, for his afterlife, his journey to the afterlife. You know, so that's the kind of backdrop to my new book. It, it uses as its premise these Coptic Egyptian texts that are by and large ignored by Egyptology as just myth and legend. So by examining those legends, in a sense, I was trying to sort of revitalize them or rehabilitate them, in a sense, um, to, to demonstrate that, well, actually, no, there's actually a lot of fact in this material. And we know now there's, there's a, a geologist, um, a, a doctor, Dorothy Vitaliano, and she, um, I suppose, was um, the developer of a new, new emerging science called geomythology. And what geomythology does is it looks at our ancient legends and myths and tries to disentangle you know, the, the often coloured language and the, the garbled message that's uh, often metaphorical, allegorical, allegorical, written in that kind of language. And what geomythology does is try to disentangle all that into actual um, events of a geophysical nature, like a volcano eruption or an earthquake or a tsunami or a comet streaking across the sky or whatever. It basically tries to demystify mythology and is... Dr. Vitaliano says geomythology turns mythology back into history. And that is what um, I am essentially trying to do with this 
Coptic Egyptian legend of Surud and the construction of the pyramids. And and so what prompted him to um, to build the pyramids? Okay, well the the Surid legend goes something like this, and I'm paraphrasing here. Mm-hmm. The king's priests, his astronomer priests, they observed that the heavens were changing. The stars were moving out and away from their normal courses across the heavens. They were changing, they were, they were wayward. And um, this, this was a really unusual observation. And they told the king of what they had found. And the king asked his astronomer priests, okay, well, what does it mean? What does this change in the the passage of the stars across the heavens, what does this mean? And the astronomer priest told King Surud, it means that in 300 years, there will be a great deluge. And this deluge will destroy the entire kingdom. Everything. And King Surud said, okay, what we are going to do is we are going to build immovable man-made mountains and into these man-made mountains we are going to place everything that our civilization, our kingdom will need in order to be reborn after the floodwaters have receded. And that's what the, the Coptic Egyptian legend tells us. He placed all his treasures, or what he valuable valuables, not necessarily gold, but valuables such as seeds and things like that would be extremely valuable. Um, their their knowledge, um, tools, of course, and all manner of other useful and important items um, would be placed within the Great Pyramid. And also, the most important thing that they would place within the Great Pyramid would be Khufu's ancestors. That is what the legend tells us. Okay. So, so it, was a, it was protective. It was, um, it was definitely yeah. something to restart. Yeah. You know the the entire country. Well, yeah, I mean it had a, um, I suppose, a, very much a utilitarian um, purpose behind it, but also a, a, I would suggest an egalitarian um, rationale um, behind it. Also, you know, they wanted their, they didn't want their kingdom to to die forever. You know, so they. Um, devised this this plan to build not just one pyramid, but they they seem to have built about 19 pyramids in total, and uh, about 16 of them they managed to complete, um, which is another story in itself, which relates to the the myth of Isis and Osiris, where we are told that Osiris's body was um, cut into 16 pieces by his jealous brother, Seth, who's a god of chaos. 
And in the pyramid text, it tells us that Osiris is the pyramid, that the construction of Osiris is the pyramid. Now, it struck me one day, Barbara, that thinking about that, these 16 pieces of Osiris that were, you know, Osiris cut into these 16 pieces and they were scattered throughout um, the land of Egypt. Now, the land of Egypt is pretty much along the Nile. And when you look at the pyramids along the base, of, uh, along the, the, the Nile Valley, you find that these pyramids, these 16 pyramids, when you plot them using Google Earth, they form the you know the, the shape of Osiris, the classical iconic shape of Osiris. You know that you see in all these um, images with his the crook and flail, his arms crossed with the crook and flail, and the the the, the atif crown with the, the three pronged atif crown. It creates that mm-hmm. image on the ground at. What I find fascinating is that, first of all, when we think of ancient history, we think people, you know, were more primitive than we are, and the reality is that they were probably more intelligent than we are in many, many ways. They didn't have the technology, but the intelligence was there, and it does feel as though they were trying to send a message to the future, assuming that that perhaps their written word would no longer be available, so that they were trying to send a message to the future in a way that hopefully the future would be able to decipher and utilize so they didn't go through the same types of problems that they were going through. And um, I, I think it's something that, that you know we have done you know when we've sent spaceships out into, into, ships out into, into space, we didn't write anything in English or another language. We we used it graphically. We tried to give information that could be hopefully deciphered by another intelligent race at some point in time way in the future. And yeah. I think that the, the ancient Egyptians did, did exactly the same thing, Khufu did, with with um, with building the pyramids and placing them as they were placed. And modern technology has just not fallen into that, let's understand, is there another purpose to this? It's, it's almost like they were randomly placed and so that's it. Or they were meant to be some sort of pumping stations for the water for the Nile. Um, but I, I love, you know, what you've done with this story because it does fill in an empty space of Egyptian history that, that – uh, what, what, 27 pharaohs. That, that, that's a long period of time that they fill in to expand the history of ancient Egypt. Yeah. Well, just to um, clarify, Barbara, this is actually um, the, the story of... Um, yeah, it's my story, it's my book, but it's actually the story of the Coptic, Coptic Egyptian people this is their their story that I'm, you know, bringing forward and you know putting out there into the public domain for the world to to look at because it's never really been taken seriously. No one's ever done this before. Was take their their oral history 
and get it out there and, and get people thinking about it. You know, so I think this is probably one of the, the very few books that does that, but it does it from, um, you know, the point of view of um, the big void, obviously, um, which is what we're, we're discussing here tonight. But, you know, you're absolutely right about, you know, this idea of a message for the future, because in my analysis, which is all in the book, I found that these structures, particularly at Giza, have been placed in such a way as to tell us and show us, show us what happened in ancient times. But it's a multi-layered message, very cleverly using the same set of structures to tell us when it happened and when it will happen again. It's, it's, okay. it's quite remarkable. The, I mean, the, the ingenuity of it is really, really quite extraordinary. And, you know, it's, it's there. But also what you said, you know, about our civilization sending, you know, probes and, um, out into space and so forth, um, Voyager 1, Voyager 2 and so forth. Our civilization is doing something that the ancient Egyptian civilization at that time were doing as well. You've probably heard of the Svalbard Global Seed Vault in um, the Norwegian archipelago. Now, this was started in, I think, 2008, Barbara, and it was completed in, I think, 2011, something like that. And this is a global seed vault. It basically carries copies of every seed type that there is in the world in this fridge in the Arctic Circle. And it's all been sealed up. And it's there um, as a genetic repository for you know, um, all seed types in the world in case some cataclysm, some cataclysmic event you know, affects the earth and you know, all vegetation and whatever is, is destroyed. So we have taken precautions ourselves to place these seeds in the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. Now, that seed vault is not about feeding everybody on the planet. It's not, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is about starting again and, you know, from, from scratch and replanting and harvesting more seeds and, you know, um, eventually um, civilization um, can flourish again, get back in the street again. And it's the same with the ancient Egyptian recovery system, which I called uh, Project Osiris. This was the 16 pyramids that they built um, as part of this recovery plan of Surud, King Surud. And it was to put inside all of these, all these seeds and tools and everything, but they would then be completely sealed, just like our Svalbard Global Seed Vault is completely sealed. It's not for feeding the general population. That's not what these seed vaults were about. Um, it was to, they were to be used after the deluge had come and gone. Now, there wouldn't be um, enough seed in there to feed the population, but alongside G2, just to the west side of G2, recently, or in the last 
20 years, I think, they, they discovered these um, underground pits or galleries, whatever they call them, and um, these were sealed over with um, solid stone. And there's a hundred of these, Barbara, and each one is a hundred feet long. It's about um, 15 feet, 10 feet wide and about 12 feet deep, each one of these. And there's a hundred of them. And they were completely sealed, hermetically sealed, um, with stones on the top. And Egyptologists really don't know what purpose they served. Well, I know what purpose they served. After this deluge, there would be people and they would need food to get them through the first year. Where they've opened the seed vault, they've got the seeds and start planting. They're going to need a supply of food to get them through that first year or two. And there it is in these, what the, the Egyptologists call the galleries. Now, to the west of um, G2 at um, Giza. And they're absolute, the storage capacity there is absolutely massive. Absolutely massive. And that, I suspect, is, was part of the plan. And also they had around the pyramids as well. Um, they, would obviously, they couldn't put the people inside the pyramids because they were completely sealed. You know, they would uh-huh. soon run out of oxygen or whatever. And... What I believe they did there is they just built boats, lots and lots of boats, and we see the remnants of that at Giza also. There's all these boat pits all over the place. The standard um, mainstream view is that these were the the solar bark of the king so that he could travel around the sun. You know, well, does the king need all these boats, really? You um, You know, so... If there was a, a flood coming, yeah, you would want quite a lot of boats. You would want, you know, like King Snethru, this is supposedly Surid's, uh, Khufu's father. He built four pyramids, three large ones and a small one. And Egyptologists just say, well, you know, this one's just a cenotaph. This one's, oh, well, we don't really know, but this one was his burial pyramid the red pyramid but his body was never found in it you know it's just nonsensical it's just completely utterly nonsensical i cannot see you know when you look at the construction process of of these three pyramids apparently the bent pyramid that was built by snethru you know he completed it even though the bend they had to you know, reduce the the angle because they felt the angle the angle of the pyramid was too steep, so they decreased the angle of it um, near the top. But you know, if it was a mistake, then he went on to build a, a, another pyramid. Well, if it was a mistake, why not requarry the blocks from the mistake to rebuild the new pyramid afresh? If you're going to build another pyramid, which he did, the, the red pyramid. Why are you quarrying blocks from the red pyramid? For the red pyramid, why are you quarrying blocks from quarries? Why not just use the mistake that you've just made, the bent pyramid, and use the blocks from that to rebuild, rebuild the thing again without this second time around without the mistake? But no, they well, it, carried on it, building it, the bent pyramid beyond the mistake. So they were actually preparing for um, a deluge. They that. 
they didn't really know when exactly it was coming or or were they aware that it, that it was definitely way in the future but they were trying to protect the 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 history and and certainly the pharaohs um of those dynasties to to help to intercede to provide for um the restarting of civilization itself and and you know you you did speak as to how there there are signs that the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx were underwater at one point in time to a great degree. Well, yes, there's a there's a, a fair amount of evidence, um, <laughs> no pun intended, emerging um, about um, <laughs> a flood um, having um, you know overtaken um, the the Giza pyramids at, at, at some point in remote antiquity. Um, but the, the thing here is that yes, they were building all these pyramids as you know part of this project Osiris. They eventually built about sixteen of them, and they would store everything in these that they would need. They, they, they knew they had. The astronomer priest said the deluge would arrive in about three hundred years. You've got three hundred years to prepare the kingdom for this great deluge that's coming. That's what the king understood. Now. To be honest, Barbara, to me it doesn't really matter if the deluge actually happened or came to pass or not. That's actually really kind of a moot point because they believed it was coming. That's what prompted them to build these monuments. They believed it was going to happen. So whether it happened or not, well, who knows. But the thing is, there is some evidence that there was some, you know, cataclysm at Giza that did involve um, a great deal of water. There's a, a chap that I um, mentioned in the book called um, Sharif Al-Morsi, and he's done an amazing amount of research at Giza. Um, he lives in Cairo, so he can go to Giza practically whenever he likes. And he's been all over the Giza Plateau studying it, you know, every stone practically. And he has made some extraordinary um, discoveries, in my opinion, about the idea that there was a, a great flood at some point that affected um, these pyramids. Um, he, he has found water erosion on, I think it's the northwest, uh, the northwest corner of G2, uh, he's found some water erosion on G1. That's a great pyramid. And um, obviously we know about the, the, the water erosion on the Sphinx. He's also wow. found, and I, I found this particularly interesting, there's a, what's called the... Um, uh, there's a temple which adjoins the smallest of the three pyramids at Giza, G3. Um, this is the mortuary temple, which um, basically is right beside the pyramid. And there's these three wall blocks. Now, it's pretty much a ruin, as you would expect. Now, this wall, these three blocks are about four or five feet high, so the wall itself is between 12 and 15 feet high from the, the, the floor of the plateau. And he was walking... Um, along 
the top of this wall one day and he tripped over something. And what it was, was the exoskeleton of a sea urchin sitting there on top of the wall. Now, it was fully embedded into the, or encrusted into the, the limestone or encased you know, on, on the top surface of this limestone, hence why you know, when his foot hit it, it didn't budge and he tripped. Now, this is a fully formed exoskeleton of a sea urchin. Now, sea urchins typically will only um, live in you know, shallow lagoon-type um, pools of water, seawater. And here, here it was, sitting on top of this wall. Now, you don't get fully formed exoskeletons of sea urchins in limestone blocks. You just don't. Limestone blocks are made of microscopic particles, not large exoskeletons of a fully formed sea urchin. So that tells us that at some point in antiquity there was water up to at least um, that level of the Giza Plateau. There's also stories um, from, I, I think, um, the, some of the Arab stories talk about that before the casing stones of the Great Pyramid were removed, I think by an earthquake about 1,200 years ago, something like that, there were water lines on the white limestone um, casing stones. There were water lines where water had reached up to and settled there for some considerable time, creating this line. And then the water reduced, water level reduced by some amount and stayed there for some time and left another water line um, you know, along these casing stones. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the casing stones anymore because, as I said, the, the, with the slaws, apparently from the pyramid during an earthquake about a thousand or so years ago. So, yes, there is... And, and then, obviously, there's, there's the issue with um, the Sphinx, which um, Dr. Robert Schock, as I'm sure you probably know, has mm -hmm. um, examined in great detail over the, the last few decades or so. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard... It, it, it's hard to argue the fact that there had to have been water there. So, so in in looking at the Great Pyramid, certainly um, with the current um, way of using X-ray. I mean, we we recently in in the last number of years, don't know how long it is, but you know, lidar has been commonly used um, in in um, in, in many places to, you know, determine what's going on um, on the ground. And this new type of, of X-ray that that uh, you speak of was fascinating. I, I had never heard of it. Um, you want to go into a little bit about that kind of X-ray that was used to sort of discover the Great Void and and um, how they how they developed it because it's it's fascinating material. Yeah, it's it's just incredible. Um, the the technology it's called um, muon tomography or just 
neography for short. It was developed, I think, back in the 50s or 60s, believe it or not, and um, it's been used in you know places like you know examining the, the interiors of volcanoes or the interiors of nuclear reactors. You know, um, you know, it, the, you know, it's quite an amazing um, technology, and it, it basically works kind of like an X-ray, as, as you said. Uh, uses um, um, muons, which are um, you know sort of um, byproducts of cosmic rays coming through the Earth, and these muons can basically go all the way through stone, no problem. Just go right through it as if the stone wasn't even there. And scientists have developed um, this um, special film which can detect these muons um, passing through um, the stone. Now, the thing is, what happens is when the muons particles pass through stone, if there's a lot of stone, they slow down. If there's less stone, they go faster. And it's this difference that they can detect on this special film. It's kind of like an X-ray plate, if you like. And they place mm-hmm. these plates all through the pyramid, the Grand Gallery, the King's Chamber, the Queen's Chamber, all in the accessible parts of the Great Pyramid. And when they eventually developed the film, they left it for, um, I think, a, a couple of weeks or so. There was there was um, three different teams, Barbara. Uh, two were working inside the pyramid with one type of muon experiment. Another one inside the Great Pyramid had a slightly different muography experiment, and there was one outside um, sending these particles in to the Great Pyramid from the outside. So these three different um, teams with different geography techniques all working together at the same time. And the thing is, when they examined the results, the films, they all correlated with each other. They all agreed that, yeah, there's a big space up there and we don't know what it is. Now, the problem is that Egyptologists or the Egyptological establishment like Hawass and Lenner, you know, they just instantly dismissed it. Oh, the pyramid's full of, full of voids. You know, it's, it's full of these, these, these spaces inside the Great Pyramid, which is really, in my opinion, just a, a complete cover story because if the Great Pyramid was a, like a Swiss cheese inside, full of holes, it would, it would have crumbled thousands of years ago. It would have never got off the ground if, it, if there were so many voids inside it. But the thing about the technique of neography is that it aggregates um, the, the results so that if it's, if it's just a small isolated space, it won't see it. If it's just a small isolated space, the neography technique just won't see it. But if it's a large space, it will see it. That's how neography essentially um, works. So what Egyptologists did then was they said, well, you know, this could actually be, this neography technique, it could actually be detecting some kind of ghost image or reflection from the Grand Gallery, which obviously we know is there. 
you know, that's what the we could be seeing on, on this film is just a ghost image of the Grand Gallery. Which didn't seem probable because um, the team that was working on the exterior of the Great Pyramid, you know, from a completely different angle, they were seeing the same thing. So if it was a ghosting image, that external team wouldn't have, you know, saw anything. But in any case, to um, double-check the results, they did more tests in 2019, two years later, and they managed to get themselves into the small chambers way above um, the, the King's Chamber, which were discovered in 1837 by Colonel Howard Weiss using gunpowder archaeology. He managed to find these small chambers the very top, the top one's probably about maybe about 30 feet, 40 feet, something like that, above the floor of the, the King's Chamber. But it's also parallel with the top of the Big Void. So they've managed to get more um, film in there, and crucially in, for this particular experiment, it was above the Grand Gallery. So there could be no interference from the Grand Gallery because these tests were done above the Grand Gallery. And yes, when the results were processed, the big void was still there. It is there, it's big, and it's real. Wow. And you have a theory as to what it is and and what it's used for, and it, it, it makes great sense to me. You want to share with us what that theory is? Well, absolutely, Barbara. And as I said, it all goes back to what, you know, Surah's astronomer priest saw and what he told the king and what the king decided to do to embark on this project of Cyrus, this to save the kingdom. Uh -huh. Recovery vaults or arcs. They were basically, I suppose, arcs that they were building. And as a touched on earlier about the ancient Egyptian religion, the king was the most important thing and he was more important in death than he was when he was alive. Uh -huh. So, given that role, what, imagine the question, Barbara, what are you going to do if you know your kingdom is about to be obliterated and completely destroyed by a, a, an overwhelming deluge, a cataclysm of monumental size, what are you going to do with you know, the bodies of these ancestor kings who are lying in their Mastaba tombs or, or wherever? This, you know, what are you, they're, they're going to be wiped away. They're going to be completely wiped away and destroyed in this coming deluge. No question about it. And they were the most important thing about the whole recovery project. These dead kings, these 27 ancestors of Khufu, they were the engine. They were the, the heartbeat of the whole thing. Without them, you know, you could build a hundred pyramids. It still wouldn't work without there being the ancestor kings to intercede with the gods to make the sunrise 
the crops grow, the Nile flow. You know, without them, that couldn't happen and everything would be destroyed forever. So you have to make sure, absolutely sure, that the most important thing you protect are these kings. You know, this is why the ancient Egyptians, Barbara, this is why they, they mummified these kings, was because of the king's body decayed. He couldn't perform this function in the afterlife because what happens is the king's soul, what's called his, his, his car in the bar, and, you know, it leaves the tomb during the day and then it comes back again at night. It's eternal roost in the tomb at night. And if the soul of the king cannot recognize the king's body because the body is so decayed, then that king will die forever. And it will have a direct impact. This is what they believed. It would have a direct yeah. impact on the kingdom. The crops would fail. The Nile would be low. You know, it wouldn't rise. You know, it would bring cataclysm to the kingdom. So they had to preserve, mummify the, the king's bodies to stop them from decaying. That was the whole idea of it. So if you've then, on top of that, got this almighty cataclysm coming... My goodness, you're really up against it. You have to do something to preserve those kings from this almighty calamity that's just going to destroy everything. And so what they did was they placed the kings, just as the Saurid legend tells us, the Coptic Egyptian legend tells us, they placed Khufu's ancestors inside the Great Pyramid. And I believe that they will be found 27 kings and their queens inside the big void. And there's a lot of reasons why, not just the, 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 the Coptic Egyptian legend that tells us they're there, but other um, circumstantial evidence like the Grand Gallery below. Because what you have to understand also, um, Barbara, is that in the religion, the king usually always had a statue of himself. Uh -huh. And the statue serves, it serves a very practical function. Basically, if the king's body did decay, and decayed so badly that the, the soul of the, the king could no longer recognize the king, they fashioned these statues in the image of the king so that the car and soul had a surrogate, effectively, which was the statue of the king. And it could go into the statue of the king and reanimate the statue of the king. And, you know, the king could continue to live and could continue to intercede with the gods. So that is why they always buried their kings, or usually always buried their kings with, with their a statue of uh -huh. um, the king was to provide the, the, the soul with a backup of the king's body decayed too, too much. Now, this is where the Grand Gallery comes in. Because when Al-Mamun broke into the Great Pyramid in, I think it was 820 or something like that, AD, about 1,200 years ago, there's these stories that... Some of the things he saw there 
where a great number, a mass of statues inside the Grand Gallery, which, remember, sits below the big void. And that makes absolutely perfect sense because inside the Grand Gallery, there are, there are these two pavements of what I think you guys would call sidewalks on either side of the Grand Gallery. And in each of these sidewalks, there are these um, notches chiseled into the stonework. And these notches are holes, basically, are rectangular holes. They're about two and a half, three feet long, and a few inches wide and several inches deep. And there's 27 of them on each side of the Grand Gallery, each side of it. And some of them are wider. You've got a shorter one, then a longer one, a shorter one, then a longer one, and on each side of this um, Grand Gallery. And that's because the, the smaller ones would have had statues of the queens. Now, remember, the Grand Gallery and the larger ones, statues of the king, the Grand Gallery is sloped at 26.5 degrees. It's, it's inclined at an angle of 26.5 degrees. That's why these holes are needed, to slot the base of the statue into these holes so that it wouldn't slide down. <laughs> the slope of the Grand Gallery, so they needed these holes. That's what what what, what they, they, these were. And just above the holes, there's there's holes in the wall as well, or inset small inset holes um, in the wall as well to double secure um, these statues into into the the pavement and into the wall, so that they wouldn't slide down um, the, the the sidewalks, as it were. And there's 27 of them. The size is alternate. Two and a half feet, three feet, something like that, all the way up either side, 27 on each side. Small ones for queens, larger ones for kings. We know that Khufu had, going back to the very first king of the Unified Kingdom, King Menes, all the way to Khufu, there was 27 kings. You can t- check that in the textbooks if you want, but there were. And we find 27 statues inside the, or holes that would have held 27 statues of kings and queens, 54 in total. Now, if those statues were once there, that is another huge clue that above them, the original mummies of these kings, the original bodies, because remember the statues of the surrogates, so the bodies must also be there. And they are in the big void. Wow. Wow. I, you know, you, you kind of want, want to have them, you know, drill a hole or something to see if, if you know, if indeed that, that is there. And unfortunately, with the way archaeology goes, even if they do find something, archaeology doesn't hand out stuff too easily. They, um, I, I don't know why, but archaeologists, you know, don't seem to, to, you know, alert the press right away. They they sit on material for a very great length of time before they actually release it to let people know what they've actually found, which is very frustrating. Has to be to you too. Well, I, no, yes, there, I mean. 
are, are there plans to do some form of, of microscopic looking in there to see what's there? Well, I mean, the, the, I've heard that there are things going on. Now, that's, that's, that's unofficial. I can't um, confirm it, but I have heard it uh-huh. through um, source that um, they are drilling a small hole. You know that I was explaining about the, these chambers that Colonel Vice discovered in 1837. The very top one has got this slanted gabled roof, like an inverted V-shaped roof. Uh-huh. And what they're doing is that roof is almost parallel with the big void. So between two of the slabs of that roof, they are drilling horizontally through the masonry towards the big void, a small hole, and as presumed to then uh, feed through an endoscopic camera into the space um, to to have a you know a, an initial look to see if there is anything inside the, the, the space at all. And I think they are going to be in for the shock of their lives. Well, if they if they do indeed do that, I mean, wouldn't it be pitch black? I mean, there's no light in there, so they would have to have some sort of a light on the camera or, or something well, to be because you know basically well, they're they're. If you remember, if you remember Barbara, if you if you remember, do you remember the the Huquat um, rover which um, descended the shafts of the Great Pyramid? Yeah. I think back in the nineties, and it had uh-huh. a small drill and a small light on on the end of it. Um, well, I imagine the endoscopic camera it does have a light source. Um, I, I don't know if they'll maybe have to develop some improvised one that has a much stronger um, light source to have, you know, a, a better chance of um, looking inside it. Um, but that is what I believe is uh, initially what's um, being done to have an initial look inside wow, so um, the what... the, the But as I said, I can't confirm that, but it is from a source. But I, I can't confirm that that is what is happening. Well, what are 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 the dimensions of the void? Kind of. Well, I mean, they... <laughs> yeah, it's okay. um, almost the same dimensions, Barbara, as the Grand Gallery. Now, the Grand Gallery is about um, twenty-five to thirty feet high. It's about um, ten to twelve feet wide. And it's about over a hundred feet long. You know, it's absolutely massive. You know, so that space is there for a reason. And the thing I also find which points to it being, you know, they'll find the sarcophagi of the kings and queens, 27 of them inside that chamber, is because of the design of the Grand Gallery below, because the Grand Gallery is actually designed as an arch. It's a corbel design which basically tapers in gradually all the way from the ground to the, the, the ceiling. It gradually tapers in, so it's an arch. Arches are designed to be load-bearing 
the app to, you know, designed to carry great loads. Now, if you've got lots of granite sarcophagi up there in the big void, then you're going to need something like, you know, an arch um, below it to, to, you know, to to hold all that weight up there. So that, again, is another indirect or circumstantial piece of evidence to show that, you know, um, they're going to find something incredible inside um, this um, big void. I've, I've often wondered about the, the, the four different um, chambers that are above the king's chamber. What, what, what was the purpose of those four different chambers? And, and they're short chambers. They're only, what, a couple feet wide or, or tall? Well, I mean, it, well, yeah. They, these are the, these are what I call. There's five of them in total, and the first one, Davidson's uh-huh. chamber, it was it was always open. It was always open since the construction of the pyramid, but no one ever knew it was there until about 1767, something like that, when um, a chap called um, Nathaniel Davidson, um, he was the British consul to Algiers, he noticed um, a bat flying out of a hole at the top of the Grand Gallery. Now, when I say the top, I mean the top end of the slope, but then 30 feet up on the wall, the side of the wall, he noticed a bat coming out of a hole there. So he went up to investigate and have a look, and he noticed there was this space. Now, the space is about um, the channel, to the chambers about two feet square. So he managed to crawl through this tiny um, channel uh. into what is Davison's chamber and it's filled with bats and bat dung and it must have been a horrible experience. But anyway, this, these chambers are about, they're about 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, but they're only about three feet high. So you have to literally crawl your way through them, you know, you can't uh-huh. walk upright at all in these chambers, and it's a really, really laborious task to get into each of the chambers above. They were discovered. The, the chambers above Davidson's were discovered by Colonel Vice. Four of them, which I call or refer to them as the the Vice Chambers, and um, no one really knows, Barbara, the true purpose. They say that, well, because the king's chamber has a flat granite roof, these were relieving chambers to take the weight of the pyramid pressing down above, off, directly off the the king's chamber ceiling. So that's kind of the mainstream, um, main theory as to why these these small chambers or apartments. Um, are there, um, but you know when you look at, for example, the the Queen's Chamber, which is much further down the pyramid, it's just got a simple um, vaulted roof, with none of, as far as we know, none of these um, what are called relieving chambers above, and because uh-huh. the Queen's Chamber is much lower down in the pyramid, it's actually got a lot more weight above it pressing down than the King's Chamber does. So if the Queen's Chamber didn't need all these 
stress relieving um, you know apartments. Why did the King's Chamber need them? You know, so it's a kind of strange um, series of um, these small chambers. And it was in these small chambers, incidentally, that Colonel Vice claims to have discovered the only writing ever found inside the Great Pyramid, inside these sealed chambers, which he had to blast open with gunpowder. That's where this writing was found inside these, these chambers. Yeah, that's that was the other thing that I wanted to get into because um it's it's always been you know, you you always know who a tomb belongs to because of the hieroglyphs that are all over the place. But but the writing that they discovered in these chambers sounds like and looks like because you have graphics of them in your book, it looks like graffiti more than anything else. So there's always been a sort of um, suspicion that that graffiti was not really done when the when the pyramid was built, but was put there afterwards. And um, you you go into great detail about how there there definitely was. Um, enough evidence to cast doubt on whether or not that graffiti was current or ancient. I want to go into that because that's a fascinating story, and I don't understand why he would have done it. Well, there's, there's various um, reasons um, why he might have done this, which I present in my first book on the topic, um, The Great Pyramid Hoax. Uh, the new evidence... That that's chock full of evidence which strongly suggests that the colonel, with a couple of his assistants, um, carried out a fraud within these chambers. The new book, a lot more material has been found since, also suggesting that this hoax was perpetrated. But I put that to the back of the book in the appendices because I didn't want it to to cloud the main. Um, thrust of the big void. I wanted the, the reader really to concentrate on the big void and the purpose of that. But you know, coming back to Colonel Vice and these these chambers, yeah, they're, they're, these chambers present what many people have described as graffiti, ancient graffiti. But what they are supposed to be, according to mainstream view is the the names of the various teams that were um putting the blocks into place um at the at the surface of you know the working level of the great pyramid these names supposedly are like addresses a person's name like you would put your name on an envelope yeah or not your name like whoever you're sending a letter to the addresses name on an, on an envelope. That's essentially what Egyptologists are saying these names are. They're like an address because these different teams worked at the working level of the pyramid so they had to ensure that the right blocks cut at the quarry ended up in the hands of the right team to go into the right part of the wall of a particular wall. So that's basically what the mainstream theory is about 
these these painted marks. But there is just so much wrong with you know the style, the orthography um, of these marks. But it's not just the marks themselves. It's you know um, comments made by Colonel Vice and his published account and his private account, which I managed to find, which simply does not um, tie up with, with his published account. The, the events you know, are just completely contradictory from what he says in his private account to what he says in his published account. You know, it's just, to me, you know, and it's just simple mistakes like writing numbers back to front. You know, hieratic writing, unlike hieroglyphics, which hieroglyphics can be written and read from the left or the right hieroglyphics. That's like chiseled um, hieroglyphics into stonework. But hieratic, which is what we call painted marks, and these were all just painted marks in these chambers that Vice allegedly found. These are all just painted marks with simple red ochre paint, which is this iron oxide in water mixed with some honey or fish oil. Um, and this um, was then used, it's called Mogra, and this, they would use this as a paint. And it was still available in 1837 when Vice was working at Giza. So, I mean, no Vice saw these markings, these types of markings elsewhere at Giza, because he, he talks about some of them in his book. So these marks, um, you know, they're known as hieratic or linear hieratic or old hieratic. Now, hieratic, according to the experts, not according to me, according to the experts, are always written right to left. Even numbers are written right to left. Inside the Great Pyramid, the wrong way around. Every other piece of text inside the Great Pyramid, hieratic text, is written as hieratic you would expect, always from right to left, except when they get to the numbers, they're written back to front. You know, so it's just it's small mistakes like that, but there's there's numerous mistakes, much bigger and more blatant than that, um, all over. Um, these marks and it's again it's all also about the timing of the discovery of these marks you know Vice had opened he named all these chambers after famous British sort of dignitaries like the, like Lord Nelson the Duke of Wellington and so forth and so on so each of these chambers he gave he gave them um, names now, the first two he opened were Wellington's and Nelson's, and supposedly on the first day of opening these chambers, he found these quarry marks inside. His, his published account states that. His private account tells a completely different story, which you can read about in the book. Uh-huh. His, um, the, the, the next chamber, um, Lady Arbuthnot's chamber, it's got more painted marks than any of the other chambers put together. There's about 120 painted marks in this chamber. Now remember, Vice has already opened two chambers and supposedly already discovered painted marks on the walls of these two chambers below. So he's now in this third chamber. 
And he's in there with another guy, one of his assistants, Mr. Raven, wants to finally break through. And in his published account, he makes no mention of any marks being discovered the moment the day they broke into that chamber. Not a single one. It's only four days later that they suddenly appeared. Now how, and this is the same in his private account, there's no mention of these marks on the walls. It's only four days later that they get mentioned in passing in his private notes. It's not like we discovered the marks, the painted marks. There's no mention of them. It's just, they're just mentioned in the discovery of them. It's just mentioned in passing. And, but, you know, four days, you know, he would have been totally anticipating these painted marks on these walls, because remember, he'd already supposedly discovered marks on the walls of the chambers below. Didn't find a single one. And there's two of them in there. And they're examining all sorts of things in there. You know, they're taking measurements and writing measurements. They have to have written the measurements down. They've had to have been using, you know, rulers, measuring rods, you know, and, and weeding off these measuring rods. So they had enough light to see the measuring rods. Why didn't they see a single one of these um, painted marks on these walls. It's not until four days later that suddenly they're just mentioned in passing in Vice's um, private account. I mean, it's just extraordinary um, what was going on. And as you know, I go into it in great depth and and (laughs) book and explain exactly what was going on. Um, But as well, here's, here's another really curious thing. Also, it's mentioned in the book, you know, Vice's discovery of these painted marks, there was, you know, a a suspicion right from the very beginning that they were fake because in 1837, a Prussian prince by the name of um, Hermann von Puckler Moscow visited Vice at Giza just before Vice had broken to any of these Chambers. He was still working away with his dynamite, trying to trying to break through. He hadn't got into any of them yet. And Prince Puckler Moscow said something very interesting to him. He said, "You're going to find inscriptions in there." And that's what he said to Colonel Vice. Now, the curious thing about that statement from Puckler Moscow is that Puckler Moscow believed there would be no writing in any of these pyramids. That's what he believes. He writes about this in his book. He didn't believe there would be any writing in any of these pyramids because he believed they were um, devoid of all writing and they were to be understood in terms of their, their geometry, essentially. So he didn't believe there would be any writing in it, and yet he's telling Vice, you're going to find inscriptions in there. And then, here's the bombshell, a few years later after um, Weiss had come back from Giza, written his book, published it in 1840, Prince Puckler Muskell, he publishes his own book about his time in Egypt and at Giza meeting Weiss. And he says that he believed the marks were recent, painted recently onto the wall with a finger dipped in colour that Colonel Weiss merely pretended to have discovered them. So right from the very beginning, there was 
a big suspicion about what Colonel Vice was up to um, with these maps. And I do go in to explain in the first book and a little bit in, in this book as to his motivation um, for 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 doing this. There's a number of possible uh, motives um, for for him actually doing this. Yeah, you go into it in, in great detail, and, and I think that it's important for people to understand, you know, why somebody would, would do this because, you know, hey, you know, he was in the Great Pyramid. You know, he was going to go down in history anyhow. So um, discovering the graffiti seems a minor point. I, I do want to, you know, get into the aspect of um, it, it's total, I'm totally switching our topic here. Um, how how the astrologers from from Khufu's when they told him you know that, that there was going to be a, a a great deluge, he also mentioned the sky turning upside down. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in in a couple in at least one one pyra- not pyramid but one tomb. It's mentioned that the sky is backwards in the ceiling, and it's not so. It's not the kind of mistake somebody makes on purpose. You know, I it, it I mean, it's it's not a mistake. Intentionally, the sky was backwards, and so how do you explain what happened? Because it's a fascinating story. What happened with our sky? Yeah, um, this is, um, I think what you're talking about there, Barbara, is the, the tomb of um, Senemut, who was the architect yes. of Hatshepsut. Um, and the tomb of Senemut has this remarkable astronomical ceiling. And it's remarkable because um, the constellations appear to, be, appear to be moving across the sky in the reverse order. You know, if you look at, say, um, Orion's belt on the southern horizon today, obviously if you're in the northern hemisphere, you will see that Sirius is, if you follow the diagonal through the belt and keep going downwards to uh, bottom left, keep going and we'll find the star Sirius. That's the easy way to find um, Sirius in the skies. Look at Orion's belt and follow the diagonal of Orion's belt downwards and you'll come to the brightest star in the sky, which is Sirius. Now, the thing about the sentiment, Sirius is following Orion because the, the stars move from east to west across, as we are viewing them, across the sky. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Sirius then is following the Orion constellation across the sky. But in the sentiment ceiling, it looks like it's reversed that Sirius is chasing Orion. Not only that, but Sirius is presented taller than um, Sa, who is the, um, the stellar personification of um, Osiris in Orion's belt. So Sa is the constellation of Orion, 
and sat in the boat beside um, Isis, sat Osiris and Isis, Isis and Sa Osiris are in the boat. But the thing is, in this boat, this depiction, you see that Isis is much taller than Osiris, which would mean that the star Sirius was higher than Orion. And that can only happen if you live in the Southern Hemisphere today. But there's no way that the ancient Egyptians in the Northern Hemisphere could ever have viewed Sirius being higher in the sky than Orion and going in the opposite direction. They just couldn't view that. The only way you can view that in the Northern Hemisphere is if the Earth is turned upside down so that the Northern Hemisphere becomes the Southern Hemisphere and then it all falls into place. Sirius is then higher than Orion and, you know, Sirius is leading Orion across the sky. It's, it's now going west to east across the sky. So, yeah, that's the the, the, the tomb of um, Senemet and it's it's absolutely um, fascinating and I present a whole stream of other facts about that particular tomb um, which essentially you know, strengthen the, the idea that um, what they were looking at or had memory of was when the sky was the other way up. I'm not hearing anything, Barbara. Scott, I think she's on mute. All right, I couldn't. I couldn't hear anything at all. Sorry, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> um, I've I've seen this in a number of other places where um, they they have talked about the sky going crazy or the stars being upside down or um so that so that this is a this is something that that has been notated in other places as well and and so is it a possibility that the earth does turn upside down from time to time well many of our ancient traditions tell us exactly that yes it does the 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 greek texts of um, plato and tell us that it does. That every so often, you know, the, the rotation of the sky goes in the opposite direction. That's that's what these texts, the Greek texts, tell us. The Egyptian texts, uh, you know, tell us that once upon a time the sun rose in the west and set in the east, and it has done so. It's changed its position at least twice. You know, this this is what the ancient Egyptian texts tell us. You know, there's texts all over the world that, that talk of post phenomena, of um, the seasons being reversed, you know, things like that. Uh-huh. You know, the sun um, stopping in the sky, freezing in the sky. Um, you know, the Bible talks, you know, the book of Isaiah and the Bible talks about the earth um, being overturned and, 
you know the stars being out of the place, and you know that you know the, the the native people of Greenland, you know they talk about you know um, how the earth was once upside down, you know, and we were antipodes, you know, all these 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 ancient legends from all over the world tell us that you know once upon a time the earth you know was the other way round and the sun uh-huh. rose in the west and set in the east. And here's here's an interesting thing, Barbara. Um, you'll know this thing. Are you familiar at all with the um, the Dream Stellar, which sort of it's this granite stellar that stands between the paws of the Sphinx and the Sphinx enclosure at Giza? Are you yes. familiar with that? Yes. Right. Okay. I am. Now, if you if you have a look at that, and you will notice at the top of this stellar, there's two Sphinxes and they're back to back. Uh-huh. Which is interesting in itself. There's two sphinxes in the back to back, and what a lot of people think is that well, there must be another sphinx on the other side of the Nile or somewhere, you know, in the Egyptian desert somewhere. That's one um, explanation why there's two sphinxes presented at the top of this stella. The other, ex- but if you look more closely at the stella, at the head of the sphinx. Both of them. If you look just above the head of the Sphinx, you'll see the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic for the sunrise. Uh-huh. Right at the head of the Sphinx, on both sides. So what that's actually telling us is the Sphinx was looking at the sunrise in two completely opposite directions at some time, 180 degrees apart. In other words, it's looking at the sunrise in the west and the sunrise in the east. Which wow! Is, you know, <laughs> it's great. You know, it's it's, it's quite um, it's quite something. But yeah, you can look at it. It's it's, it's there. Um, you can look at the images um, online, or you know, I've got the images in the book as well. But yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> the Sphinx is looking at the sunrise on two hundred and eighty degrees apart. Well, that would certainly account for a, a lot of. Um it would explain a lot of things that that, that I've that I've read in many places, where especially it's the Egyptians or the Sumerians writing about the sky going crazy and the stars, you know, going crazy. And what fascinates me is that just recently, within the last decade or so, the Hopi Indians were talking about the stars moving in in different places. That the the stars were wobbling or the sky was not steady anymore now i'm not saying that we're going through one of those flips right now but i am saying that that a lot of things that that in many um of the writings that we we've seen that have come down through antiquity where they've written something that we all think of you know well that's just crazy they were they didn't know what they were looking at and you, you you come to to this point and you begin to think, wait a minute, maybe they did know what they were looking at. Maybe they were trying to tell you exactly what was happening, and because we can't conceive of it, we think it's you know it's just fable. But but in reality, it may have actually happened. And, so listen, yeah, and, on, and it's cyclical. 
So that's what I got from, from your book, that this is cyclical. This is something that happens, but it only happens every, I don't know, 7,000 years or so. So, of course, when you begin to go through it or things start to change, you really don't realize that 7,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, whatever it is, that, that this is something, this is a natural cycle of the earth. And there's well, nothing that's, that's... supernatural about it. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I'm becoming more and more convinced of, Barbara, is that this is a natural, intrinsic part of the Earth's mechanics, geophysical mechanics, and it does occur naturally um, over certain periods of time. Now, are you familiar, Barbara, with the Janibekov effect? I think so. Right, okay. Zanibekov was was a Russian cosmonaut. And once, when he was on the Salyut 7 space station, and this is back in the 1980s, he was unscrewing a T-handle from um, a wall mounting. And he spun it free, and the, the, the T-handle just carried spinning on through the space station in zero gravity. Now, the curious thing about its spinning was every so often that without any outside torque or interference, it would just flip by itself 180 degrees. And then it would carry on like that, and then another inter- same interval, it would click, flip, sorry, 180 degrees again, and then it would carry on. Same interval, it would flip another 180 degrees. And it carried on like this through um, the space station. Now, this was like absolutely stunning. And it was it was such a controversial um, discovery that the Russian government kept it secret for 10 years until they understood <laughs> what was going on because they were concerned that, well, if that can happen and it just happens by itself, maybe this happens to the Earth. So it turns out that what what it, what it's called is the inter, intermediate axis axis theorem or the tennis racket theorem. That's what we know this theorem as today. But the mathematics of it were actually worked out back in I think the early nineteenth century, and basically. Um, it's caused by a, the tiniest imbalance in the T-handle will cause it to naturally flip like that 180 degrees. That's a very short explanation for it. A very slight imbalance in one of the axes of the, the T-handle causes it to flip. Can the Earth flip like that? Well, no, according to the scientists, because the Earth has found its natural rotation angle, it's a sphere, and it just goes round this natural angle of rotation, you know, and will do so forever. It doesn't have an intermediary axis or a second axis of rotation. But that's just now. If something hit the Earth, like, say, a comet, say, 12,000 years ago, like the... the um, Younger Dryas Comet Impact Theory, which suggests that a comet 
impacted Greenland somewhere between 12 and 16,000 years ago. That would then, you know, the impact of that would cause a slight wobble of the Earth. And with that wobble, that is essentially an intermediary axis that has developed there. And if other conditions are right, then I believe the Janibekov effect could then occur to the Earth, just as it does. Because the Earth, you know, um, has had a jolt. It's been made imbalanced. So the Janibekov effect could then um, take effect, especially if this impact hits the sea. Um, there's a, a great paper by an Italian naval engineer. He's a professor, um, I think, of physics as well. And he, he wrote a paper called The Instantaneous um, Shifts of the Pole. And um, his name is Flavio Barbiero. And he shows through these calculations that a very small asteroid, just like the one in Greenland, if a part of it hit the ocean, that could generate the Janibekov effect. The Earth would tilt over very rapidly, just like these T-handles do. You know, so, yeah, the, the Earth looks nice and peaceful at the moment. Um, it doesn't, <laughs> you, know, you know, but maybe that's all it takes. Maybe all it takes is one of these asteroids or whatever to hit the ocean and induce the Janibekov effect. Well, when you, when you stop to think about the fact that it's it's well known and documented that the poles do wander, and they wander um, quite extensively from, from North America to Greenland to over in, in um, Europe someplace. I mean, they, the poles do wander so that there is a shift there, and when you when you also look at the fact that um our land mass um are on plates that float on on a, uh, apparently f uh molten lava so that so that if there is a a disturbance in the force so to speak the planet could spin in in many different directions and and change things and if you look at the fact that um Obviously, the poles are. This is something that that we don't feel um, exactly moment to moment. But if you look at our seasons, all of our seasons have changed. Um, from you know, I'm 77. I can remember back when our seasons were very different than they are now. And so, so there are shifts. There are natural changes that are ongoing all the time. And that that the, the that if a, if an asteroid did hit a landmass or the ocean, even worse, uh, well, I guess I guess the ocean is better than hitting a landmass where it kills people, but it's going to shove the balance off, and once the balance is off, it takes a while to to regather that that balance or to establish balance in another place, so that. We are we are on a I, I mean this is a del this planet has a delicate balance and we don't notice it because it's so big but 
if you were step if you stepped back and you looked at the planet from from space you would understand that 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 there is constant change going on and 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 certainly i can see how it would be kind of fun to observe you know this flip of the poles because um you know, we all see our water going down clockwise in the northern hemisphere and counterclockwise in the southern hemisphere. Um, if it changed, it would be just the opposite, and and our seasons would be reversed. So, antiquity had it right. It's just that it was it was so far in antiquity that we don't give them credit for being able to report things ad- adequately or appropriately. Yeah, um, the Earth is a dynamic, deeply dynamic, um, living thing, you know, it really is. Um, uh-huh. You know, the, the, I was talking earlier about the sun rising in the, the um, west and setting in the east. Now, one of the problems with with these particular ideas is that Science, if the Earth inverted, if the Earth simply turned upside down, you know, as it's rotating, it just simply turned upside down. You know, everything all just went together, um, 180 degrees. The sun would still rise in the east and set in the west. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, scientists and other, you know, um, historians or whatever, they don't give much credence to these ancient texts, which tell us this, but well, the sun actually rose over there, not over there, because science believes, well, for that to happen, the Earth would have to slow down, stop, and start spinning the other way, which, you know, given, <laughs> given you know, the, the laws of physics, that just is not going to happen. It can't happen. But there's a chap called um, Peter Warlow. He's a, he's a physicist. And um, he wrote this uh, this really incredible paper in the 1980s, and uh, presenting his theory called the tippy top. And this theory basically uh, is also to do with um, electro, uh, you know, the um, ma- magnetic pole as well as the geographic pole, which are two different things. And the, ma- the magnetic pole can vary or currently varies from the geographic pole, I think by about 11 degrees, and it moves, the the magnetic pole moves over the place very rapidly all over the place. Even now, it's it's kind of doing that. But the geographic pole remains fairly constant, remains fairly steady. Now, what um, Peter Warlow um, discovered was the tippy-top, what he calls the tippy-top theory, now, if you have a tippy top, a tippy top is like a kind of, um, it's kind of like a mushroom, yeah. And you spin it by the stalk, you hold the stalk and you just spin it really quickly and let it fall on a table, and it'll land on its head and it'll keep spinning on its head, and then gradually it, will, it tilts over, and then gradually it pops up onto the stalk and is spinning on its stalk, which is quite remarkable, but. There you go, to, to, to observe that, that actually happening. But the really interesting thing about the tippy-top spin is the fact that when you spin it initially, 
it goes in a particular direction and then when it flips over it still spins in the same direction uh-huh. which is which is remarkable because if that happens it's still spinning in the same direction with it now upturned that means west will have the sunrise and east will have the sunset what Peter Warlow effectively showed is that the Earth's rotational axis can effectively be decoupled from the mass of the Earth, as it were, and the, the mass of the Earth can rotate through the axis and keep rotating, but end up um, like uh-huh. the tippy top on its head, but spinning in the same direction. It doesn't need to stop and start and go the other direction. This keeps spinning in the same direction, but because the axis hasn't tumbled with the Earth, the axis stays fixed. It doesn't tumble over with the Earth, which means the Earth, when it's tumbled over, it's still spinning in the same direction as it was when it was upright, but now the sun will rise in the west and set in the east. And Peter Warlow did the physics for this and showed how it works. And there you go. Maybe the ancients weren't so crazy. You know, maybe they did see something that our science struggles to understand, but which actually some scientists have made sense of, like Peter Worrell has made sense of it and shown actually it can happen. And the ancients tell us it happened. And we would be really, really, really dumb, in my opinion, not to start, you know, to start to listen to them. If we don't listen to these guys, maybe there's something there really, really profound that we are missing. Well, that's I a concern. Think there absolutely is. <laughs> no, I, I think there absolutely is, and I think that's one of the things that I love so much about all this. <laughs> Excuse me, dry throat. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I think what's fascinating is that it's all been preserved. <clears throat> And um, yeah. excuse me. And and yeah, these, preserved um, it. Go ahead. Yeah, these um, um, oral traditions that have come down to us from the, the the Coptic Egyptians, which tell us the purpose, the real purpose of the the, the pyramids, um, you know, was you know to preserve the kingdom, not the king. Yeah, they had to preserve some kings in the pyramid. The Great Pyramid, that was the only one that placed these kings in, the big void. You know, this story was preserved, um, but it was preserved amazingly by the, the Coptic Egyptian people because the Coptic Egyptians were invaded three times in their history and persecuted three times, brutally persecuted three times in their history by the, the Romans, the Greeks, and latterly um, the, the, the Muslim invaders. And they had, to, I mean, Egypt was one of the world's first countries that, that, that had writing. But yet its people, much later on, had to use covert means to maintain and carry on and hold on to its cultural heritage. It had to use the oral tradition covertly because if it wrote it down, you know, if you've seen writing down your true history, these persecutors, these these invaders, you know, they're you know, they're they're going to have you disappear, you know. So you're not going to 
to do that. So they had to covertly preserve their oral traditions. And that is why um, some people ask, but if the Egyptians could write, well, why didn't the, the Coptic Egyptians have this all written down? Because they were persecuted. They had to commit it to the oral tradition and pass it down that way. Eventually it came to the, the Arabic scholars of med- early medieval times and they interpreted um, these these amazing um, tales. You know, there's so much in the Surid legend which you can say, well, you know, that's fact and that's fact and well, that's fact as well. Even the name of the king, Surid, could actually be the name Khufu. Um, with just a, a small um, change in the Greek spelling. Um, you know, so I passionately believe that these Coptic Egyptian texts do contain an element of truth. There's a kernel oh, of truth. Absolutely. And, you know, just how much. And, and well. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you go back to. You go back to 2,000 years ago when they were putting the Bible together. Once they put it together, Constantine ordered all of the other texts that were out there destroyed. So there was no competition for the history that he was recording. So it absolutely does seem that, that it is something that has gone throughout time. That, you know, what is it they say? That, that it's always the, those, the victorious write the history. And yeah. and I think that that's definitely a case here. I mean, just look at what the Romans did to the um, library at Alexandria. They burned mm-hmm. it all. Yeah. They they didn't want any of those texts to survive. And I think I don't think it was because they wanted to to you know change history. I think it was because they were just stupid. But <clears throat> yeah. but but any way you look at it, they burned the library, and we lost thousands of years of of history. So. Recovering it as best we can is is really the best way to go. And the oral traditions, like like I said at the beginning of the show with my intro, the man that did the intro is a native storyteller, and that's how they preserve their history and their cosmology. And and I think you've got the same thing with the Coptics. <clears throat> I just noticed our time, and we are definitely bringing bringing this show to a close. And and I. I have to thank you so very much for all of your information. Your book was fascinating, and and I'm going to have to now pick up the other books and read them too. <laughs> so I will no, have you back I'm, for sure. <laughs> well, that's that's that sounds good, Barbara. I've um, thoroughly enjoyed um, my time here um, this evening with you, explaining um, all my my thoughts and ideas. I have no way, in any way, explained everything that I. Um, I've come up with and you know, put in my previous books. So, I mean, there's a whole ton of stuff there. You know, I mean, I haven't even touched, for example, on the fact that the, the pyramids at Giza themselves show this pole shift event. They absolutely show this yeah. pole shift event. You know, uh, you know, so it's just that's why one of the reasons why the, the placement of those pyramids at Giza, the smaller, the two sets of three pyramids, categorically show this pole shift event, categorically show the earth tilting over, as does the two sets of shafts in the Great Pyramid. That shows the very same thing, the earth turning over. So, I mean, I haven't even touched on any of that this evening. So, yeah, there's a lot more to read in my books. 
Oh yes, I, well, I, I didn't want to give it all away, um, but <laughs> but it's 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 so fascinating to me that that it it shows how very aware and and intelligent the ancestors were that they they were trying to send a message forward in time and it's taken us this long to become intelligent enough to understand the message that they left us i i i i would anticipate they thought we were smarter we would be smarter than we turned out to be i guess <clears throat> I think, that obviously, also, this message, they didn't want to interfere with by writing. It's a mathematical, astronomical message that they left for us to interpret. That's why they deliberately didn't want any writing anywhere, because that would just distract us. That We would be too focused on the writing. Oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And we would miss the big picture, the big astronomical, mathematical message that is right there on the ground at Giza. That's a really good point. And and those degrees, you know, are repeated over and over and over again. So, uh, and they obviously understood pi, and they obviously understood so much. And and the I think the one thing that, that you bring out that, that I do want to point out is that because of the um, the pole shift and the tippy-top effect and everything, a lot of our calculations are wrong as to the time frame that, that a lot of this happened in so that so that a part of Egyptian history has definitely been missed 27 pharaohs their time frame is not figured into the timeline of ancient Egypt which would make it far more extensive and far older than than everybody has said it is so I well, think that's something Egyptians that hopefully yeah. They tell us the civilization is 39,000 years old. That's what they tell us. I don't know. Maybe they're right. <laughs> I would think they probably are right, considering all of the other material that they've got out there. And certainly I'm hoping I will keep watching for any kind of um, information on, on the, the research into the, the Great Void, because... Hopefully you're bringing it to public knowledge, and public knowledge usually is what pushes archaeologists forward to, to investigate new things. Um, <clears throat> your, your book is, is obviously the Great Pyramid, uh, the Py Great Pyramid Void Enigma, and you have other books as well. Um, I encourage everybody to, to, to pick this up and read it. It's a very it's a it's a wonderful read. It's an easy read it's not one you're going to struggle through and it does enlighten you as to the potential of you know what what things that we've looked at all our lives and never understood could possibly be i want to thank scott for being here it's been it's been a joy and and i will have you back again and we will look forward to tomorrow night with mark he's got another great show online and then next week as well so keep keep checking this out this show will be up on youtube later on today and look at it re reread it reread it re listen to it 
If you enjoy what you're seeing, please subscribe to the channel because that's how we know you listen. So until tomorrow night, thanks again. Good night, everybody.